In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, Paul tells us that Jesus has become four things for us. Through the course of December, our pastors are going to preach each one on one of these things that Christ has become for us. As we prepare to hear God's word preached, will you join me in reading 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This is the word of God. Just seeing Jason reminded me that on the 23rd of this month, we'll have our annual candlelight service, which has come to be a great blessing to us, a sweet time of fellowship. Starts, um, I think it starts at, I better not say, we'll tell you. I'm debating between 6.30 or 7, but it, um, it only lasts one hour. Afterwards, we have hot chocolate together, and Jason will be bringing the Candlelight devotional. Just want to remind you also to be in prayer for little Titus Emery, who hopefully is coming home today. This has been a tough week for Adam and Melissa. Some ups and downs. It's, it is a serious condition, Kawasaki disease. But uh, our hopes and prayers are that this little guy will make a full recovery and one that will not leave him with any lasting vascular problems. That's one of the dangers of that particular disease. Well, you're in 1 Corinthians, and this morning it's my privilege to launch our four-part Advent series. Each of your pastors will be preaching one of the four sermons. What might surprise you, however, is that all four of us will be preaching from the same verse. It's verse 30 of our passage read this morning. And each of us will be focusing on only one word. Those four words may be seen again in verse 30. Just glance at verse 30. The words are wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. 
Doesn't that strike you as a rather strange text to be the basis of a series of sermons celebrating the birth of Christ? For a moment, it did to me. The verse seemed to be more about what Jesus accomplished in his life and death rather than in his birth, and it is. This verse is going to remind us that God the Father is the source, that's the word used in the ESV, is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom He made God the Father our wisdom. And better translated, I'm just going to sneak this in here right now, lest I forget, and hopefully I'll come back and reiterate it. Better translated, after the word wisdom, should be something like the word namely, or that is. He made whom he made our wisdom, that is, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. My fellow pastors will be opening that up, and I'm certain that in their studies they will discover the same thing. The word wisdom is the, the larger, more comprehensive gift, which includes three specific gifts. So this verse is going to help us understand how Christ Jesus has been made these four things for us. And that's the point. In order for us to be saved and given wisdom, true wisdom, consisting of righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, Christ had to come into this world to rescue us. He had to take on our flesh and our humanity. He had to be incarnated. He had to live a sinless life. He had to die a vicarious death. He had to be raised to prove he conquered death. And this is exactly what he did in his first advent. Advent simply means a coming. But he had to come. He had to be born. He had to take on flesh. He had to live a sinless life. He had to die on the cross. He had to be raised from the dead. He had to ascend back to heaven where He rules and reigns over His kingdom, bringing it to its fullness and to its consummation. And that is going to last until His second advent. So again, the word advent simply means a coming. There's a first advent. And there is a second advent. And we are now, just to use a bit of a technical term, but it won't hurt you to know it, we are in the interadventual period. So if you're ever reading and you come across sort of a theological term like interadventual, it just means in between, in between the two advents. We're in that period now. And we wonder how close we are to the second advent. Only God knows. And yet, at this time of the year, we celebrate our Savior's first advent. And we celebrate it as Christians because we know why He had to come. Namely, as I've already said, to save us, to do His great work of redemption. Now, many of us have already experienced the benefits of that saving purpose, but not everyone. And I would ask those of you who may not be truly trusting in Jesus this morning, those of you who, according to Paul's description in the earlier part of this chapter, are still fools, I would urge you to ask yourself, have I become a person whom God has given life to and put in Christ have I become that person? Have I experienced that? Or am I still lost and perishing? After leaving or living a perfect and sinless life for us, and after dying to pay for our sins, God graciously gave us life in 
Christ Jesus, whom, as Paul has said, made him our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption, having chosen us before the foundation of the world. In time, for those of us who are Christians, for those of us who are converted, for those of us who have been born again, in his own perfect time, God called us into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. We didn't read this, but would you just notice verse 9? God is faithful by whom you were called. That doesn't mean nearly invited, but it means ushered, powerfully drawn. You were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. He called us to be born again. He graciously put those of us who are believers in Christ Jesus. And now, guess what we have? Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, the way Paul puts it in our text, has become for us wisdom, namely righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So these redemptive blessings and many more are why Jesus the God-man was born in Bethlehem. These are four redemptive blessings that will be the focus for these next four sermons, starting with this one. Now, this morning, my task is simply to open up the meaning and the significance of the word wisdom. You may think that's easy, but it isn't. I've spent a great deal of time studying, praying, contemplating, trying to grasp the significance of that word. And I want us to appreciate how that wisdom was obtained for us. So what is it? That's the first question. What is this wisdom? The second question is, how did we get it? And the third question of my message this morning will be, what difference should it make in our lives? So let's let's wrestle with question number one. What actually is this wisdom of which the Apostle Paul speaks? Well, I believe that our true and precious wisdom needs to be seen in contrast to the wisdom of this world. That's what Paul's doing in this passage. That's why I had Jason read at least back to verse 18. But we could have gone even further. But we begin to hear Paul use words like folly and wisdom and weak and strong and low and other such words. And as we understand how the Apostle Paul is contrasting the wisdom of this world with the wisdom that we now possess and have in Christ Jesus, we begin to understand what the essence and the nature of that particular wisdom is. So, it really is going to come down, as we look at these earlier verses, to how we see the gospel, or what Paul calls there in verse 18, the word of the cross. Did you notice that as Jason began to read? The word of the cross. That's just a way of expressing the message of the gospel. The word cross, of course, encapsulates the gospel because the gospel is centered in and based upon the cross work of Jesus on our behalf. Now, there are only two kinds of wisdom, according to the Apostle Paul, and there are only two kinds of people. You see, there is such a thing as worldly wisdom. Look at verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? That is, in his own eyes. Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish, now notice the phrase, the wisdom of the world. So there is such a thing as worldly wisdom. But there's also such a thing as godly wisdom. Look at the very next verse. For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God 
through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. There is, according to verse 21 in the beginning of it, a wisdom of God. So there's worldly wisdom and there's godly wisdom. And there are only two kinds of people. We shouldn't be surprised at that. They're described for us as well in verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to category number one, those who are perishing. But to us, category number two, who are being saved, it is the power of God. So two kinds of wisdom, worldly and godly. Two kinds of people, those who are perishing and those who are being saved. Maybe you just wonder, what does that mean, being saved? I thought I was saved. Well, Hopefully by now you have learned, if not, this is a good time to understand this, that salvation is for the true believer a past, present, and future event. We are saved if we're trusting in Christ. We are being saved as he continues that saving work in our lives and conforming us gradually Seemingly too slowly into the image of Christ. And someday when he comes back, whether we're already in the grave, our bodies are in the grave or not, we will become completely saved. Our souls will be made perfect. They are the moment we pass this life. All believers in heaven are sinless, but their bodies remain in the grave. Salvation is as a project of God for both soul and body. And so when the Lord comes back, He raises the dead, particularly, and giving those who trusted in Christ new bodies, sinless bodies, bodies without any infirmity, and salvation will be completed. Past, present, and future. So, it is an already and a not yet. That's the salvation. So... You can see how these categories divide us from the world and actually cause division sometimes in our relationship with the world. Paul calls worldly wisdom sinful. But worldly people who think they are wise call the gospel folly. Godly wisdom calls it the power of God. Worldly wisdom starts, stays, and finishes with man. Godly wisdom starts, stays, and finishes with God. So for us, Solomon summed it up well. For us, true wisdom and knowledge is a gift from God. And it begins with the fear of the Lord. A reverence for God in His Word. Christians, whether they know the Word or not, are people who have their epistemology straight. There's another big word. Interadventual, we got that. Epistemology is just a philosophical term for our theory of knowledge. Everyone has a theory of knowledge. How do you know what you know? Where did you get your knowledge? Did you get it out of your own mind? Did you get it by simply observing the world like a scientist? Is it observation-based only? Or is it also revelation-based for the true believer? Our knowledge and our wisdom comes from God. And we know that. And we look outside of ourselves. And we're not ashamed to say, well... Here's why I believe what I believe about us, because of God's Word. And we're so deeply committed to it that we're willing for non-Christians to laugh at us and say, you, you really believe the Bible? Are you kidding me? You go back to the Bible for that? And the answer is yes. Where do you go? You go to your own brain. You go to your own fallen faculty of rationality. And you assume that it's capable of arriving at truth. And when you get sort of upset with us when we say, I don't think I can arrive at truth, I start with the conviction that God's Word reveals truth. 
And then I proceed to develop my understanding. I say, well, that's circular reasoning. When you tell me, why do you, in answer to my question, why do you believe what you believe? You say, because the Bible teaches it. And I say to you, but isn't the Bible fallible? And we say, no, it is not fallible. And they say, how do you know it is infallible? And we say, because the Bible says it is infallible and gives evidence of being infallible. Well, that sounds like circular reasoning. You presuppose that the Bible is infallible and all of your wisdom comes ultimately from the Bible and we have to have the keenness of thought and the courage of soul to say to our friend, you also presuppose something. You presuppose that man is able by his own intellect and his own rationality to arrive at truth. And when I ask you why to Do you believe in man's rationality? You will give me a rational reason. It's circular reasoning for you. We're not embarrassed about it. We're willing to be called fools. And young people, when you go off to college especially, though I certainly don't mean to imply that you're not confronted with this kind of worldly wisdom in high school or even in middle school, but especially in college and at the university, you will be thought a fool for having an epistemology, a theory of knowledge that says this is the ultimate and final and infallible and inerrant revelation of truth. This is it. And you can proceed to give far more intelligent answers for what's going on in this world than they can. The world's at a loss to explain what's going on. Education is supposed to be the Messiah. Are things getting better in the world? Really? Prisons are being depopulated. No. There's more war and hatred and malice and prejudice and violence in the world than ever before. Oh, we just need to educate ourselves better. Once we ed- and education becomes the Messiah. Christians, we must not be embarrassed about explaining the world from our worldview based upon the Word of God. It's very rational because it comes from Perfect rationality, the mind of God himself. So I'm just saying, look, it's it's going to be tough to be a Christian. It's going to be tougher and tougher as time goes on, because guess what? We're fools in the eyes of the world. And they are the wise and they are the learned. So we've got our epistemology down. We start believing in the ultimate authority as found in God's Word. So there's the antagonism, and now you understand even better why the world hates us and why they think we're really idiots, we're really stupid. But I want you to appreciate something in verse um, 21 for just a second to see how God is ruling all over this. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Just just try to grasp what he's saying in the first half of that verse. In God's perfect wisdom, he determined that man could not arrive at truth apart from him. He ordained that worldly wisdom will never actually find God or truth. God's in control of this. So they try and they try and they try, but they never get a hold of truth because they're not humble enough to look outside of themselves to an infallible revelation called the Bible and embrace the truth. So God is sovereign. He's ordained that the world of unbelievers never obtain a knowledge of God apart from Him. And that's the good news. It can be obtained through Him, not apart from Him. So the wise are really fools, and the fools are really wise, and we are truly wise, and we've been saved from our folly by what? Through the preaching, through the word of the cross. I just want to be sure you understand what the word of the cross is. So here's a simple summary. The word of the cross 
is that we're all sinners. God is holy. God is just. God cannot sweep sin under the carpet. God's justice must be exercised. Every sin we've ever committed must be punished. And either we bear that punishment or someone perfect bears it. But the justice of God will not be set aside. And this just and holy God is also a loving God who sent His Son into the world. He so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. And He required Him to live a perfect and sinless life. And then He required that that life be offered up on the cross to be the substitute for the wrath that all of us deserve. And the really good news is that whoever feels this terrible, terrible plight, I am wicked, I am undone, I am lost, I am worthy of hell, God is holy, I must be judged, I must be punished, unless someone will pay for my sin. And the wonderful news of the Gospel is that He sent His Son to pay for it for all who would trust Him. And by simply looking to the cross, we hear the word of the cross as the Gospel, looking to a a sacrificial Savior who was making an atonement by faith. We look to Him, and the second we look to Him, all of our sins go to Him, all of its punishment falls upon our Savior, and all of His perfect righteousness comes to us, and we're saved. That's the word of the cross. And we follow this Savior, and we love Him, and we desire to be more and more like Him. But we're forgiven. Forgiven how? By somebody who died on a cross more than 2,000 years ago? Yes! That is the true wisdom of God's Word. And that's how we're saved. And that's why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. And that's why we're doing an Advent series on those key words that seem to be focusing on His death. Of course it focuses on His death because He came to die. And so everyone must repent. The gospel requires humility. And Paul says, people hate it. If you're a Jew, it's a stumbling block. What do you mean, the Messiah? The coming, reigning, glorious King was crucified and became a curse on a cross? I'm not going to buy that, says the unbelieving Jew. And the unbelieving Greek and Gentile and philosopher, whether in the days of Aristotle and Plato or in our day here in the West, says, that's ridiculous. You guys are saying that your sins are forgiven because of somebody who died 2,000 plus years ago on a cross and it becomes your payment for sin through somehow believing upon him? I'm far too sophisticated in my wisdom and knowledge than to mind that that's folly. That's foolish. So to some it's a stumbling block, and to others it's just pure folly. But to us who believe, Paul says, it's the power of God. So we're not only considered by the world to be weak and foolish, but I just want to make this observation. We are actually in and of ourselves weak and foolish. And Paul's saying, if you you hold to this stuff, you're going to be thought a fool. But I think the Bible also makes it clear that prior to coming to Christ, we are fools. We are weak. And you'll notice in this chapter a contrast between weakness and power, between ignorance and wisdom. And one verse actually reminds us that Jesus is both of those things for us. It's not the, the text that we're focusing the most on before I conclude. But notice verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Yes, we are weak. Yes, we are ignorant in and of ourselves. But in Christ, we have power and we have wisdom. And uh, I was listening to a man preaching on this passage this week, and he helpfully reminded his hearers of the famous German philosopher, uh, atheistic philosopher, Nietzsche. 
You know what he said about Christians? He said, they're very weak people who somehow have to believe in some Savior who came millennia ago. That's weak. That's probably the only thing that Nietzsche got completely right. Because guess what? We are weak. And we are foolish. Until we come to the Lord Jesus Christ by God's grace. And when we do, He is our power. He becomes our wisdom. So, that's really what the word wisdom comes down to in in verse 30. Christ is our wisdom. God has given us wisdom to trust in Him. But once we trust in Him, it's not that we have all of the infinite wisdom He has, but He becomes our wisdom by being our Savior. So representatively, we do have infinite wisdom. That's what, it, that's what it's going to come down to. That's why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. So that we could have this wisdom, which is really the wisdom of God in Christ Jesus for us. We are wiser than we once were. We are truly wise in a certain sense. But in Christ, we have a perfect wisdom. So that's all I want to say about number one. Number two and three, I'm going to go much more quickly. So the question is, how do we get it? Well, now I want you to look at our key text, verse 30. How do we get this wisdom that is really wrapped up in Christ. Well, Jason read it. Look at it again. He, who's he? Well, look at the word that precedes it in the at the end of verse 29. It's God. God the Father. That's who the apostle just made reference to. He, God the Father, is the source of your life in Christ, Jesus, He's the source of your life in Christ Jesus. He's the source. Whom? Who does that refer to? Christ Jesus. Whom God made our wisdom. You can answer my second question on your own. How do we get this? Well, Pastor Ted, you just read in reiterated two or three times, He, God the Father, is the source of our life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom. Do you have to be a theologian? Do you have to be a Greek scholar? Do you have to be an exegete to make sense out of that? I'm not asking you, can you grasp it all? We're going to spend eternity trying to grasp it all, and we'll never grasp it all. But does that not make sense to you? He is the source of your life in Christ. As you said before me this morning, you are either in Christ or out of Christ. If you have come to trust in Him by faith as your only hope for a payment of sins and a perfect righteousness, you are in Christ. How did you get in Christ? He is the source of your life in Christ, whom God made to be wisdom. For you. You see, the emphasis is really very clearly on the sovereignty and the omnipotence and the grace of God. This is one of those texts that just sucks all of the pride and all of the self glory out of every cell in our bodies and in our brains. He is the source. We are not the source. Now, let me just push on that just a little bit more and show you in the larger context how clearly Paul um, is setting forth the sovereignty and the the omnipotence of God's grace. What's omnipotence means? It means almighty power. Sovereignty is his right to rule and reign and do whatever he wants. 
Look, look at the usage of the word chose in verse 27. But God chose what is foolish. Look at the middle of the verse. God chose what is weak in the world. Look at verse 28. God chose what is low and despised. Does it sound like somebody's doing some choosing around here? Does it sound like we just did this on our own? It was just an act of my free will? I just decided to be a Christian? I decided I was done with the folly of the world and the ignorance of the world, and I decided, I'm, you know what? I'm going to be wise. I can do this on my own. I'm going to choose God. You're not going to choose God. Even though you have a free will, your free will is utterly permeated with self-love, and you will never exercise your free will in the direction of godliness and God, unless God changes your will. God has to choose us before we choose Him. You've heard people say, God chooses those who choose Him. It's, it's utterly wrong. It's reversed. We choose God because He first chooses us. And so you see the usage of the word choose. My dear brothers and sisters, that's God's electing grace. The word election isn't used there, but that's the concept. The word election in various forms is used 55 times in the New Testament. But notice also the use of the word called. You see that as far back as in verse 2, 1, 2. He's writing and he's just addressing the recipients of his letter and he calls them those sanctified in Christ. You'll never be set apart apart from him. You have to be set apart by the grace of God in Christ. Sanctified in Christ, Jesus called to be saints. And then please look at verse 9. I've already quoted it. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son. Notice verse 24. But those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. God calls people. Choosing precedes calling. Calling is an experience in time and life. Choosing is something done in eternity. But those whom God has chosen in His own perfect time, He calls powerfully and effectually. And that's why theologians speak of it as an effectual call. One of the best questions in the old catechism for Actually, for young people, is what is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery and enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, He doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered in the gospel. That's a lot. But you memorize that, you read that, you meditate on it, and you see what effectual calling is. It's this powerful, omnipotent work of God's grace, changing sinners who cannot change themselves. It's God invading our souls with His omnipotence and His grace. It's God making us feel our sinfulness and our desperate condition. It's God making us hopeless and then opening our eyes to see the beauty of the gospel. It's God changing our wills so that now we want to be holy. We want to please God. It's a work of God from beginning to end, and it's an effectual call. There's a general call, the invitation of God to all people indiscriminately. It's a sincere call, but unless that general call is accompanied with efficacious grace, that is, grace that's effective, Grace that brings about the desired results, unless it's accompanied by that, the general call will do no man any good, no child any good, no woman any good. But God effectually calls, and that's what Paul's talking about here in this text. <clears throat> I like the way this is translated in some other versions. I'm happy with uh, He is the source. I like that. He is the source. God is the source of our life in Christ. Now, how can you believe that He's the source and take any credit or glory to yourself? Literally in the Greek, it says, out of Him. That's why the translators of the ESV have used the word source. Out of Him, we are given this life. But, for example, the NIV puts it this way. Some of you have that on your laps. It is because of Him that you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? 
because of him. Listen how the New English translation puts it. He is the reason you have a relationship with Christ Jesus. And listen to the New American Standard. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. There's no way to get around it. You have to murder the translation in order to get around it. This is a work of God's grace. This is an omnipotent work of God's grace. This is a sovereign, omnipotent work of God's grace. So the answer to question number two is, we've, we've already answered, what is it? What is this wisdom? The second question is, how do you get it? God gives it. Now, that doesn't mean it would be bad for you right now to ask him to give it to you. Okay? That would be a good thing to pray right now. God, this is attractive to me. And I can promise you that if this is attractive to you and you're interested in having this life in Christ, whom is wisdom for you, if you're interested in that, you're already an object of some gracious work in God's heart because ain't nobody interested in that stuff. That's from God. So go ahead. Call upon him while you sit there and ask him to call upon you and he will so but please notice that it's life in Christ life in Christ so it's this intimate mystical hard to describe hard to fully define union with a savior that results in this wisdom it's interesting, Paul uses the, the expression in Christ or in him 164 times in the New Testament. It's one of his favorite expressions about our union with him. So to be in Christ is a little bit like to be in the ark. You imagine the day that the, the door finally closed and the lightning struck and thunder clapped and the floodwaters were raised. It was a scary, scary situation. But if you're in the ark and Noah's there saying, this is God's provision for our safety. It's a little bit like that. To come to Jesus by faith is to be so intimately joined to him that you live in him and in the essence of him. But to use another analogy, it's like coming home with the brokenheartedness of the prodigal and having the father call for the best robe and putting it around him. To be in Christ is to be so joined to him that his righteousness is your righteousness and his wisdom becomes your wisdom. So we can't just skip over the expression in Christ. I just want to ask you before I come to the final question. Does your life give evidence that you have experienced the effectual call? What's the effectual call? It's that powerful work of the Holy Spirit of God where he draws you uh, to the Lord Jesus Christ. He makes you feel your sinfulness and your desperate situation. And he opens up the glory of the gospel and you see that there's a Savior who can pay for my sins. And you call upon his name and you believe upon him and you run to him and you embrace him. With, a, with an embrace that's determined to follow him the rest of your life. That's what the effectual call is. I'm asking you, have you experienced this effectual call? I know that Paul doesn't use that theological terminology, but the concept demands the theological terminology. Look once more at verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. So call upon him. Well, that's why Jesus had to be born in Bethlehem. Now, I come to my last question. What difference should it make in our lives? We, we see what this wisdom is, and we see how we got it. Will that change you? Will that change our lives? Will that do something in our dispositions, will that do anything to our pride, our previous pride before we were converted? Will that create in us something beautiful and wonderful that's pleasing to God? Oh, yes, you can believe that. Here's what it's going to do. It's going to deal 
a death blow to your pride. It's not going to eliminate it. It's going to deal a death blow to your pride, which will continue to be minimized by the grace of God throughout your Christian life. And it's going to give you a dose of humility like you've never felt or experienced before, which also will be increased throughout your Christian life. Here's a question. Are you becoming more humble than you were a year ago? Seriously. I ask myself this. I hate my pride. I hate it. Are you in the process of becoming more humble? First of all, just before God and seeing what a wretch you are and how you should be splitting hell wide open right now. And when you speak of your Christian life, are you compelled spontaneously and perpetually to give the glory to God for your salvation? That's God's concern. That's what he's jealous for, according to this text. Why does God want to shame the wise? We saw that. He shames the wise of this world. Why does God want to shame the strong of the world? Why does God choose the foolish of the world, that is, in the eyes of the world? Why does God choose the weak instead of the strong? Why does God choose the low or the base? Why does God choose the despised? And by the way, don't ever read the wrong thing. Paul says not many, not many wise, not many noble. He didn't say not any. He said not many. God calls famous, prestigious, brilliant, influential people. They're just in an extreme minority. But why does he do this? There's only one answer, and the answer is found in verse 29 and verse 31. But look at verse 29. So that. Remember, whenever you see a so that, ask yourself, okay, what was it that preceded it? Because now he's coming. This is a purpose statement. So that. So you say, okay, you should hear bells ring, purpose, purpose, purpose. i got to go back. What is it? There's something that's giving him a so that. Well, you can look at the so that for a second. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Okay, I'll work with the so that, so that for a moment. It looks like he doesn't want people to brag. He doesn't want people to boast. He wants people to boast in the presence uh, of God in the right way, but not in the wrong way. He wants humility. And what is it that was designed to produce the so that? Well, just go back a little ways. And it's verse 30. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made. Actually, that's not, that's not before. That's, that's immediately after it. But in verse 28, it's God chose the low and the despised. This is what brings us to the so that. There's another so that, and that's why I started reading verse 30 again. God chose so that. And then when you come to verse 31, he uh, quotes again from one of the prophets. It happens to be Jeremiah, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. And so when Paul's done with this little argument about God being the source of our life in Christ, who to us is wisdom, that is redemption, sanctification, and and so forth, He concludes once more, it's like Paul's really determined to convince the Corinthians that they should be humble. And if we had time, I would take you back to the beginning of this chapter, because at the beginning of the chapter, after his nice greeting and saying some nice things about them, he says, you know what's really troubling me? He already gets his letter started. He says, I'm really troubled about the disunity in the church. I'm really troubled about, in, 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 in this, in this particular case, the disunity was manifesting itself that I prefer the preaching of Mark Redfern. I prefer the preaching of Pastor Ted. I prefer the preaching of Jonathan. I prefer the preaching of Pastor Keith. And then the real holy people say, I just want that preaching that I'm pretty sure was from Christ. It sounds really good. They were dividing over people. They were worshiping people. And the, the way Paul solves this problem of pride is the cross, the word of the cross. Because the word of the cross humbles us. We all have to bow down. The ground is level. We need a Savior. We're wicked. God had to punish His own Son. I'm so vile. 
So you see what God is concerned about here? His own glory, his own glory, his own glory, his own glory. Is that wrong for God to be concerned about his own glory? No, because he's perfect. But if you and I are concerned about our own glory, it's wrong. Because we're not perfect. God can be jealous for his own glory. There would be something wrong, as Piper freely points out, frequently points out in his writings. There would be something wrong with God if he was not consumed with a passion for his own glory. Because he's the only person who exists in the universe who deserves infinite glory. So he's designed a plan of salvation that makes us nothing and him everything. It makes the wise become fools, and it makes the fools become wise. That's the issue at stake. So we got to get this theology down, folks. When it says he is the source of our life in Christ, for whom he, Christ, is wisdom. He said, man, that really, that really humbles me. God, thank you, thank you, thank you for doing what I could never have done or would never have chosen to do. So, dear believing and trusting sheep, can we be too jealous for the glory of God? Can we be too concerned about being proud? Can we be too passionate about boasting in the Lord? How frequently we need to remember God's electing love, God's effectual call in our lives. So there's the brief treatment. What it is, how we got it, and what difference it should make. If you're not a believer, I beg you, I plead with you to repent of your pride. Tell God, I'm a fool. I thought I was wise. I'm a fool. And I need this bloody Savior to pay for my sins. And I'm prepared to tell a world of Ph.D. philosophers that I'm not ashamed of the word of the cross. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you came into this world so that you could live and die in our place. We thank you that salvation is all of grace. And we pray that we'll never forget that, not even for a moment. And we pray that the way we speak about you will be a way that gives all of the glory to you. Lord, help us to boast in you. Help us to be so overwhelmed with how wonderful Your grace has been in our lives that being nervous about sharing our testimony or sharing the gospel will not even come into our minds. We're just preoccupied. We pray that we would just be preoccupied with boasting in the Lord. Lord, be gracious to any who are outside of Christ. And we pray that today for them will be the day of salvation. We pray that today you will be the source of their life in Christ. Through him we pray.